0: ago, we, we sort of started this flight pattern of going through the, the book of Genesis, and um, we've, uh, we've come upon the second to the last message of this particular series, uh, from chapters 1 through 11. Uh, next week, uh, we're going to look at chapters 10 and 11, and more specifically, just the Tower of Babel, and so if you are one that likes to read ahead, and uh, plan, you can go through uh, chapters 10 and 11. And then uh, from there, we're going to move on to, uh, to other uh, texts before we return back to Genesis. I believe uh, we'll be in Genesis 12, I think starting in September or October, somewhere in there. And so uh, you can be, uh, be prepared for that. And so as we um, go into uh, God's Word today, Uh, Why don't we uh, ask him to bless our time together? Heavenly Father, you're good. Uh, Your word tells us that it will not return to you void. And so, Father, this morning I pray that you would purify our hearts, our minds, and that you would set uh, the goal of this time together to grow into faith and grow into maturity in Christ Jesus. That we would set realistic understandings of what faith looks like after redemption and that we would uh, wholeheartedly chase after Jesus uh, to follow Him in faith. And it's in His matchless name that I ask this. Amen. Well, setting realistic expectations in life is one of the, uh, one of the most overlooked yet important things, I think, that we uh, can do as people. Um, it, having a realistic view about things in life... Uh, will keep us from deeper disappointments. It will, uh, I think, keep us from many interpersonal conflicts, uh, among other things. And, and you see it in kids, maybe even when they, they come back from a camp or something like that. I can remember when I was 16, uh, I went to this, uh, this Minnesota State Youth Leadership uh, thing, and it was awesome because it was a whole weekend full of uh, kids that were my age, and we spent this, this weekend uh, making connections and, and uh, learning leadership skills and networking and all this kind of stuff, and it was, it was fantastic, and you sort of leave those experiences thinking that you're going to change the world, and I can remember um, my dad picking me up and getting into the car and actually being somewhat uh, kind of grumpy. I was in a bad mood um, it was uh, I was irritable. I was not very happy for a few days and and maybe it was just the fact that uh, uh, I was sixteen i hadn 't slept very much for three days, and, and the hormone drop just kind of made me a little bit irritable. but I think a lot of it also had to do with the fact that i was I was moving back into reality that i had just moved uh, i 'd been in this uh, this great experience for three days and now Reality is, is kicking in. I'm not going to be able to change the world overnight. And, and um, my life was pretty much the same as it was before I, I went to this, uh, this weekend. My expectations got the best of me. And sometimes when uh, in premarital counseling, one of the uh, most difficult things to do uh, for couples that are uh, going to be married is to help set up realistic expectations of what life is going to be like uh, once, once marriage actually happens, most in, engaged couples have this ethereal view that life is going to be perfect, that they're going to be financially stable, that they're never going to have conflicts with their spouse, and that that life is is just going to be uh, that's going to be grand. And most engaged couples they live in this delusion that their partners are not sinners, and that there's not going to be some things that they're going to learn about each other. But for any of us who have been married for any uh, sort of time, we realize that our partner is far more wonderfully complex than we ever thought when we were, uh, when we were engaged. And that calls for thoughtfulness about realistic expectations. And uh, if you are uh, not expecting these sort of situations, it's going to rock your, your, your world and, and your relationships. You know, we can often fall into the Christian life like that too, thinking that once we uh, receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, that all of a sudden things are going to be great. We're not going to sin anymore. Life is going to be fantastic. We're going to be financially stable. Uh, I'm not going to have any more problems with this. Contrary to some prosperity preachers that you might see on TBN, life after redemption is not easy. If anything, life after coming to the Lord Jesus Christ can be more difficult in many ways. Uh, it, it, it could be filled with lots of difficulties. It could be filled with lots of temptations and trials and, and heartbreaks. But there's also wonderful joy that's involved in that too. And in our passage today, God tells us through the pen of Moses uh, and helps us understand what life looks like and how we should approach it after we have been redeemed from the curse of sin. So if you're opened up to Genesis chapter 9, I invite you to read with me beginning in verse 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these people the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard he drank of the vine, of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent and Ham the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside then Shem and Japheth took a garment laid it on both of their shoulders and walked backwards and uncovered the nakedness of their father And let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So, if there's anything in this passage that we need to understand about life after redemption, the first thing is that we need to be realistic about life after coming to Jesus. You know, there's a stark contrast here that we find in Noah of who he was before the flood and now who he is after the flood. Prior to the flood, uh, the Bible tells us that Noah was labeled as a righteous man. He walked with God, and we get this view that he is just this this giant in the faith. He was delivered from God's judgment in the ark uh, miraculously for however long he was in that boat for. And now all of a sudden he's he's on dry ground again, and the text tells us that he becomes a man of the soil. Now we don't really know what he did before the flood. We we can uh, assume that he was a carpenter because how many guys have the the skill set to build a boat that big uh, in the desert? So he possibly was a carpenter. But here he's changed his occupation. He's now become a man of the field. He's become a man of the soil. And this is showing now that he is embracing the role that God has given him to be sort of the next Adam. Remember, he said, be fruitful and go and multiply. And here, he is just like Adam. He's becoming a gardener. He's becoming uh, a farmer as the catalyst of, of new beginnings in humanity. And of all the agricultural options that he chooses to plant, he plants a vineyard. Um, now, archaeology, it's interesting, has been able to trace back the history of vineyards and has found that vineyards actually find their roots in this very area that Noah is believed to uh, start planting his vineyard. And in planting a vineyard, that isn't necessarily the problem here. Uh, and the problem is not even one necessarily of producing wine. Uh, if you look over the span of the Bible, grapes uh, and wine are not viewed as a problem. In fact, in some verses that actually... Uh, shows that it's a blessing and a gift from God. But what the problem, though, is, is the same thing that Jesus tells us is the problem with money. And if you remember, Jesus had, had once said that it's not money that's not necessarily the root of all evil. It is the love of money. And it's the same thing here. It's not necessarily the wine that's the problem. It is the love of the wine and the excessive nature of drinking that wine. And so here we find Noah being prey to that. He got drunk and noticed the progression. He gets drunk. He passes out in his tent. And this has a lot of commentators now um, sort of questioning the authenticity of this text, whether or not this is uh, factual. Because they look at this and say, how could Noah, this guy who was faithful for so long, um, uh, find himself in this sort of a, a situation. This can't be the same person. This has to be a fabrication. And I, I, I don't think uh, that uh, what is happening here is that this is a fabrication, that, this is, that the Bible is wrong here. I, I think that anyone that has been redeemed of God, that has been saved from their sin, it's not hard to figure out what the deal is here. Um, it's not complicated to figure out that righteous people sometimes act very inappropriately and fall into sin. And the thing that we have to remember here is that this righteousness that the Bible says that Noah has, it isn't his righteousness. He's not that good of a person. Rather, it is God's righteousness that has been given to him. This is not a righteousness of his own. It is given to him by God through faith and he showed it in being obedient and building this, uh, this ark. Uh, if you look on the life of Abraham, which we're going to this fall, it shows that Abraham's faith is what God attributes to his righteousness. And so it's nothing good in them. It's what God has given to them. And so because of that, Noah here is still prone to sin. Noah is still prone to mistakes, Now, think about that juxtaposition. He is still righteous in God's eyes, that God looks at him as if he is perfect because he has been given the righteousness of Christ, but yet he still makes mistakes. He is still capable of great destruction. And perhaps this story, more so than others, helps you and it helps me connect with people like Noah. It makes him look a little more real. It makes him look like a real person. Because those who have faith in Jesus Christ are righteous in his sight. But we still make mistakes. We still hurt others. We're still hurt by others who bear the name of Jesus. Some of us still make messes of our lives. People like us can understand how it is that Noah, this giant in the faith, can now be this helpless, naked drunk in the tent. So this Noah now has stripped himself in a stupor and he's passed out in the tent. It should serve as a warning to us that Noah could not do it on his own. And so we cannot live righteously on our own as well. Noah needed help. He needed help that was not found in himself. He needed help that was found uh, outside of himself. He needed the help of the living God. And if we have seen the beauty of, of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross in taking the punishment for our sins... In our rebellion, we cannot just leave it there. We need God's grace every single day. There's that old hymn, I need thee every hour. But folks, that's not true. We need him every moment of every single day. It's sad to read this passage because here's this this mighty Noah who Many of us grew up in Sunday school, reading of this great story, singing fun songs about this guy in this boat, and, and uh, we, we just looked at him as a model of what it looks like to live by faith, and he's reduced himself to this. And you and I can have that same fate. We need to press on in faith. Now it's interesting, at the end of Noah's time here, the story ends with the only words that we read of Noah speaking, and it's a curse. The very last thing that this guy says are curses. He puts a curse on his son's child, his grandchild, and the interesting thing is here that what he is cursing his grandchild for, he never would have had to have done if he had not fallen into what he fell into. He is cursing his son essentially for his own mistake here. If Noah would have never gotten drunk, this is not how his story would have ended. But God has purpose in that. We're going to see that here in just a minute. But this is a sad reminder that you and I can enjoy a long life of faithful obedience, integrity, being known in the community for being a pillar of faith, and in one instance, it's gone. One slip up and your legacy, it's gone. And that's a sobering thought. It doesn't mean that we can lose our salvation. It doesn't mean that we're going to lose our righteousness in God's sight. It just means that as the redeemed of God, we can still fall mightily. And because of that, we need to cling to Christ every moment of every day. But at the same time, it's not as if we're passive participants just sitting around waiting for God's grace to come. God will give us grace if we seek it and ask for it. But we also have a responsibility to act on that grace as well. And that's why our second point um, is the other side of God's grace. That we have to respond with, with uh, purity. And you can add another thing into that, too, is that we need to respond to moral dilemmas with purity and integrity. When God provides grace, we must respond in faith and integrity. Here's Noah's drunken episode here. It sort of sets the background for not only this passage, but really everything else that comes out of it. Notice two very different reactions to Noah's Um, situation here. Look in verse 22 with me. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers. So what are the two things that Ham did? He did two different things. First of all, he saw the nakedness of his father. Now what what does that mean? Well, people who are scholars, they sort of debate what this means, and there's a few uh, interesting theories that they have on what this means. There are some that say that this means that Ham violated his father in in a sexual manner uh, because to uncover the the nakedness can, in fact, mean um, sexual immorality. There are some people that, uh, based on some verses in Leviticus, infer that there was actually some sort of ancestral relationship between ham and his mother and how they get at that is there are verses in leviticus that say don't like for example they would say don't uncover the nakedness of your uncle's wife therefore you would you would uncover the nakedness of your uncle so it is sort of this uh, roundabout way of saying that you're disgracing people um Some would say that Ham is not doing this at all. But it's actually Canaan. And that's why Canaan gets cursed. But I think the most logical way to think about this is to just simply read the text for what it says. Ham saw his father lying, drunk, and naked on uh, the ground in his tent. Now for us, this would be sort of hard to understand of why this would be such a a big deal, and I think that's because we live in a culture that doesn't really value modesty. In fact, we have a culture that actually prizes immodesty. If you don't believe me, just go to Coburn's today and look on the magazine rack as you're checking out. If you don't believe me, just watch any uh, primetime network television. You you don't believe me... uh, there's a lot of different ways, if you don't believe me, that you can check that out. But we have a culture that is um, uh, not modest, and for many of us, this here almost seems too prudish. But in Noah's day, nakedness was a form of shame. And if you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve had, had sinned from taking of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Um, What happened? They realized they were naked, and then they tried to cover themselves up. Why? Because the text alludes to the fact they, they felt the shame of their nakedness. So this was a disgrace for Noah to be naked for sure here, but in a large degree, it was a disgrace for his son to see him naked. Because Friends, when we look at the totality of the Bible, it is clear that God reserves nakedness for intimacy. It is only reserved for a husband and a wife who are bound together in a covenant of marriage. And perhaps in our day, we could learn a thing or two from Noah's culture about modesty about the way that we present our, our bodies. We can learn not to wear the skimpiest bathing suits that we can. We can learn uh, that it is not good to flaunt yourself online. Students, we can learn that it is not good uh, to send uh, inappropriate pictures to other people in text messages. And so Ham saw his father naked here, and if that weren't enough, notice the second thing that he also did here. He went and told his brothers about it. Now, we can read that and simply see it as sort of a dissemination of information. Hey guys, I just walked into the tent and dad's naked in the tent. But I, I, that's not what I think is happening here. Rather, I think the thrust of the language that he's using is one that would shame his father even more uh, because he went out there and sort of bragged to them about what he saw. (laughs) Guys, you should see the old man in the tent. He's drunk again and naked. I think they're shaming, Uh, he's shaming their dad a, a bit here. He gossiped about it rather than being broken over it. Friends, we need to remember that gossip isn't always about spreading false things. Oftentimes, gossip is spreading true things that are none of our business. And here he is uh, bragging to them about what is what is going on. He's gossiping. He's dishonoring his father. And in the ancient Near East, it was a huge thing to disrespect your parents. If you remember um, the uh, the fifth commandment, to honor your father and your mother so that you can live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. And he is not Doing that here. Ham is actually dishonoring him. So, to Old Testament ears, this would have been an incredibly big deal. And so, when Ham was faced with a moral dilemma, he chose moral abandonment. He chose to take the low road instead of honoring his father. He chose to make his father's sin infamous. And we need to be careful not to repeat his error. We probably are not, hopefully are not going to walk into a tent and discover such a thing. But we are equally prone to fall into situations in which we have these moral dilemmas and oftentimes we respond to them in moral abandonment. In ways that aren't Filled in integrity. It doesn't just have to be with how we treat our parents. Uh, it, it could be with how do we join our coworkers or not join them in the crude jokes that they're talking about over lunch. Or in the fishing boat. Or adding to or continuing conversations about someone else's problems. Or encouraging someone in their sin. Or students... Um, maybe it is uh, embarking in uh, bullying someone in the classroom. There are a lot of different ways that we fall into these moral dilemmas. And when we face those kind of situations, we need to take the high ground. We need to take the road of integrity and purity. Now look at this situation through a different set of eyes, the, through Shem and Japheth's eyes. Let's look in verse 23. Then Shem and Japh- uh, Japheth took a garment, laid it on uh, both their shoulders, and walked backward and uncovered their father uh, uh, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. So apparently, they put an end to this gossip. Ham, you're going to stop talking about this. This is not okay. And then they they took a garment and they put it over their shoulders. They were probably, you know, one is over here, one's over here. Put it on their shoulders, they walk backwards. And as soon as they see their father's feet, they lay the blanket down. They don't see what's going on there. No harm, no foul. They did what was the right thing. We can see here two sons that have a deep respect for their father. We have two sons that deeply care about his reputation Deeply care about his modesty. And in everything that they're doing here, notice that they are not just being good sons, but they're actually acting like God the Father here. Because if you remember in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, when they saw their nakedness and they tried to to hide in shame and they made fig leaves uh, that would cover their nakedness, you remember what happened? God ended up saying, you think fig leaves are going to cover your shame? it's not going to work. So what did God do? God slaughtered an animal, and he made coverings for them based on on animal skins. And here, Shem and Japheth are doing the exact same thing. They are covering their father's nakedness in the same way that God did for Adam and Eve. You see, this story is not just a children's Sunday school story this is a picture of what god did for us in jesus christ in the shedding of his blood we are covered our moral failures are covered in the shedding of jesus's blood god no longer sees us as morally naked we are no longer exposed when you and I have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and we seek to respond to these situations in integrity and in purity. We can give a powerful testimony to the God who covered us from our sin. Now think about your day. Think about what are some ways in which you might encounter or fall into situations where this might Lead you into temptation, whether it be moral or ethical situations with your coworkers, and maybe it's your your children, or maybe it be through gossip or jokes, or maybe it be uh, going through uh, passing a bottle when you don't need to do that. There are two choices: you can give in and join. Or you can resist and respond in moral purity. Let me encourage you both positively and negatively. Positively, always be alert that these situations can pop up at any time and anywhere. We need to be uh, alert, we need to have self control. And negatively, don't coast. Part of our problem is that we just let our guard down. And when we're not expecting things to happen, that's when sometimes the most damage happens. So we can't coast. We, we, we cannot go in autopilot here. We can't be passive. Because not only will we have an influence on uh, our relationship with God in that regard, but it will also affect many other aspects of our lives as well. And that's actually leading right into our third point. And that is to grasp the weight of your influence. Grasp the weight of your influence. Verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, and it goes on from there. And the question should, we should naturally uh, ask Actually, let me read a little bit more here. Um, 24, Noah awoke from his wine, knew his young, what his youngest son had done. Verse 25, he, at, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants. He shall be to his brothers. And he goes on in verse 27, and he, and he says Canaan should be uh, Japheth's servant as well, and Shem's. And the question that naturally comes why did Noah curse his grandson? What does Canaan have to do with this? And there are, again, a lot of theories here, but what I think is happening here is is something to do with um, Ham being Noah's youngest son, Canaan being uh, um, Ham's youngest son, and Noah knows the personalities of all those that are in his family. And so Noah is not necessarily putting a curse uh, in the way that we think about it, but rather he is making a pronouncement sort of like a prophetic utterance that based on Canaan's personality, because of Ham's personality, this is probably what's going to happen. Another way to say that is that sometimes you will see uh, a father and a son who have similar tendencies— who, uh, or a mother and a daughter who have certain personality traits that are uh, related to each other, certain struggles that they both have. Um, the old adage isn't necessarily false, and if you've spent much time as a teacher in a classroom that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, that's actually quite true in, in many regards. Obviously, there are exceptions to that, but that is true. There is a such thing as generational sin, And if you know your Bible history, you know that Canaan actually becomes one of the biggest enemies of Israel. And this text points toward that origin, and an origin that lies in Ham, whose personality sets the stage for the morality of the Canaanites on a grand scale. Whatever the point is here, it's clear that Ham's sin is generational. The kind of sin that Ham committed, Canaan was prone to. And our sin, in the same way, it affects other people. We may not see the extent of our personality traits or our issues as they relate to coming generations. Ham didn't. Ham never saw the opportunity to see how cruel the Canaanites were. He never got to see how the Canaanites, (laughs) this is sort of interesting in regards to Noah, how the Canaanites were, they loved to flaunt their nudity. How the Canaanites um, not necessarily enjoyed, but participated in child sacrifice. How the Canaanites we uh, were unashamed about their wickedness, and it all stemmed from him. And further, you and I don't always see how our sin adds into the culture of our communities or into our families, but it certainly has an effect on them. Notice in verses 26 and 27, Noah says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So you would normally think that they would ask for God's blessing on them, but there's something opposite happening here, is that uh, Noah is actually blessing God through this. It is the exact opposite of Ham. Ham's sons were cursed. God gets glory because of Japheth and Shem. And it looks into the future here as well. Shem would end up being the ancestor of Abraham, who is the father of faith. Japheth would end up being the the father of the Gentiles. And one day they would all prosper together, coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ, bringing God's people together as one. And we need to remember that our integrity, or lack thereof, shows what we believe about God. His mercy, His kindness, His his excellent greatness throughout our lives. It has opportunity to influence people, whether for the good or for the ill. Uh, look what First Peter says in, in, in uh, chapter 4. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of their time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So, so in other words, we'll go on here in a second, Peter is saying that when you don't join in these things with everybody, they think it's weird. He goes on to say, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So our our acts of righteousness, our integrity, our purity, whether they're received by others or they're denied by others, is a witness to God's goodness, whether in uh, judgment or in their faith. So let's put this all, all, all together now. Um, you and I can still be captivated by sin as Christians. We can respond to it in either disregard or maybe despair, thinking that there's absolutely no hope. Or we can respond in purity. But in that decision, it won't just affect you, but it will affect others. One of my favorite movies, uh, that's out there is this movie called The Patriot. And I know that many of you have probably seen this. It's a, it's a movie about the Revolutionary War, and, and it was one man's desire to, to keep his, his children out of the war because what he has seen in war and, and the, the killing, the brutality that comes with it. The, the lead is a character named Benjamin Martin. He's played by Mel Gibson. And Martin is this, this famous soldier who is uh, famous for his brutality in wars against Native Americans, in fact, he is so famous for being brutal that he is uh, where his claim to fame was was actually hacking up his enemies even after they were dead. Here is a guy that's just known for being this this brute. But now he's in South Carolina. He he's he's settled down. He's he's a widower and he's a farmer. He has seen the horrors of war. He has intense regret in his heart for his actions and and what he did in these campaigns. And he does not want his children to join the the Continental uh, Army. His oldest son, Gabriel, ends up joining the war, even outside his father's permission. And so in an effort to protect his son in the war, uh, Benjamin enlists. And so uh, in all of this, there's this British soldier who comes and he's, he's, this, he's part of the Queen's Rangers who are sort of like the, the cream of the crop in, uh, in the British uh, army at that time. And he is also known for just being a savage as well. In fact, there was one town that he went and he killed everybody that was in the town by gathering them in a church building, locking the windows and the doors and burning the place to the ground. One of those people that he had savagely killed in that way was Gabriel's young wife. When Gabriel and Benjamin come upon this carnage at this church, Gabriel wants revenge. And he, he runs off to go find this, this queen's ranger. He ends up finding him. He ends up shooting him, thinking that he is deceased. And then he gets the bright idea to take off his bayonet and hack this guy's dead body in his revenge and his rage. Well, it turns out this British soldier isn't quite dead, but is more so playing dead. And as soon as Gabriel wants to go in for the damage, the soldier turns around and sticks him with a sword, and Gabriel falls to his death. Benjamin is too far away to uh, do anything about stopping this whole thing. And so he rightfully comes upon his son and is understandably weeping over his son. And later he recounts to a fellow uh, military officer, this is what he says, and it's a line that permeates the entire movie. He says, I have long feared... That my sins would return to haunt me. And the cost is more than I can bear. You see, Benjamin Martin realized that sin has consequences. Ones that he would never have wished on himself, never upon his children. Sin will always take you further than you want to go. It will keep you longer than you want to stay and will cost you more than you can pay. So how do we reverse this? How do we act purely when we look upon uh, these sort of situations? Well, what we need to do is trust the same one who covers our sin. The very one who cleanses your moral stains. Jesus Christ is the very one who will keep you from moral stains. He can use your situations for good and not for ill. You will never be perfect, but in Jesus Christ, He can give you self-control. He will change you so that you don't desire the evil things. He can change you into desiring what is good. Look at what Psalm 68 says. Trust in Him at all times, O people, Pour out your heart before him. Our God is a refuge. So how do we live this way? How do we avoid this? We trust in Christ at all times. Though we live in, in reality of sin in this world, there is indeed hope. There is hope in Jesus Christ. There is hope that we can live in integrity. Even if our integrity has come crashing down, there is still hope that it can be restored. Perhaps you're here this morning and you've never heard these words and uh, and it sounds so strange to you. Let me encourage you that that, that means that you need Jesus Christ Maybe you've been walking through your, your days and, and it seems like, I just can't keep going on like this anymore. Life just can't continue like this. There is one who wants to redeem you. His name is Jesus. He wants to take you from your sins. He wants to take you from your sorrows. He wants to take you from those things that you face and he wants to restore you. He wants to make you whole again. doesn't mean life's going to be perfect, but it does mean that you're going to be perfect in God's eyes. And it means that He will never leave you, and He will never forsake you. And that is good news. And it comes through faith and trusting in Him. Trusting. That his death on the cross was sufficient for even the worst thing that you have ever done or even thought about. And that his resurrection was sufficient enough to raise you from the deadness of sin and was sufficient enough to resurrect your body when he comes back one day. Maybe you're here this morning and maybe you've been a Christian for A little while, maybe you've been a Christian for 30 years and you uh, maybe realize that you've been walking away a bit and you see that your life is taking turns that maybe you don't want them to go. Maybe it has taken a turn and you want to to get back to where it should be. There is hope and it's in Christ. He is the good shepherd. Let him bring you back. Go to him. We need to renew that trust and we need to renew that faith in him. There is a reality of life under sin, but there's a remedy for that life. And it is in Jesus Christ. Trust in Him at all times, O oh people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your grace and mercy. Lord, in- indeed, there's there may be some heavy hearts in here right now. It may be dwelling upon the last few weeks, last month, last year, and realize that there are some things that went down that weren't cool. And Lord, in, the, in, the, in view of that, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would now come to them and reassure them that in Christ Jesus there is forgiveness, there is renewal, there is grace. Father, I pray for those who might not know you that feel that something needs to change, that they don't want to leave this legacy of how they're living. And so, Father, I pray that they would go to Christ today and that they would come to him in prayer and in faith, saying, God, I know that you can restart my story to give them that faith this morning. And Lord, as we leave this place together, Would you help us to see the beauty of Christ, that though we were like Noah, drunken and naked on the ground floor of a tent, Lord, you cover us, and you cover us completely. Let us relish in that, Lord. Let us delight in you, and it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward, please. And would you stand with us as we respond to God's word?